Under the Surface, and I'm your host, Amy Landau. Thanks for joining me today. My guest for today is Charles Person, who was one of the original Freedom Riders in 1961. The Freedom Riders were civil rights activists who rode a series of interstate buses into the segregated South during the 1960s to challenge the non-enforcement of U.S. Supreme Court decisions, which ruled that segregated public buses and other public spaces were unconstitutional. They challenged the status quo by riding these buses as a mixed racial group into the South. Born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia, Charles Person attended Morehouse College, where as a freshman, he became a civil rights activist. He was invited by the Congress of Racial Equality, or CORE, to join the first Freedom Ride. At the age of 18, he became the youngest freedom rider to participate in this powerful nonviolent movement, which challenged the persistent inequality of the South. He was brutally beaten two times in Alabama by Klansmen. Charles is a veteran of the Vietnam War and US Marines. After his retirement from the Marines, he continued his career with the Atlanta public school system as an electronic technician. He currently lives in Atlanta, Georgia, is a member of the, of the NAACP and remains an activist to this day in his community. He has a new book coming out with Richard Rooker published by Macmillan called Buses Are a Coming, a memoir of a freedom rider. The book is expected to be published by April of 2021, but possibly by the end of this year. Welcome Charles Person. I am so honored that you agreed to this interview. Thanks for having me. So you were very young. Uh, am I right that you were only 18 when you joined the Freedom Riders in 1961? Yes, I was right out of high school my freshman year in Morehouse. It's incredible. And so what compelled you to do that? I mean, I know you were already involved as a civil rights activist, but this was a huge, a huge thing to do. Well, uh, the Congress of Racial Equality realized that throughout the South there were a number of uh, young people who had been trained in nonviolence, uh, passive resistance, and they wanted to tap in onto this resource. And they sent a, a request throughout the South and North uh, for participants. Uh, and I, uh, once I got the application, uh, you know, I applied along with a lot of my colleagues. Mm -hmm. uh, the selection process was uh, rather difficult because uh, in spite of the training that we had received, they wanted to give us additional training. So we had to go to Washington, D.C. for a three-day training uh, session prior to uh, depart departing on the, on the ride. And what made you want to do this? I mean, did you recognize from the beginning just what you were getting into, that you were going to be risking your life? Well, uh, at that particular time in my life, I was 18, and I was determined to fight segregation no matter where I found it. And I would have gone anywhere, anytime, uh, to, to take part. And this was, this was an opportunity for me to do it on a larger scale other than Atlanta. Because in Atlanta, the way the movement works, if you were successful in Atlanta, it only affected Atlanta. Whereas for the Freedom Rides, once, if we were to be successful, it would do it nationwide, which also set a precedent because after we were successful in the Freedom Rides, uh, the Freedom, uh, the Voting Rights Act, and the Civil Rights Act of 64, and, you know, they were also nationwide. 
and you didn't have to replicate in each state and each city what we had been doing in the past, which took a lot of time and a lot of resources. But were you afraid of what you were getting into? Um, did you, I mean, at that age, or were you just so focused on making this change that you didn't think about that? Well, I could say I was focused in all that, but as an 18 year old, you don't, you don't contemplate your own mortality and you know, fear, uh, that was not a part of it. I know there were times that I should have been afraid mm -hmm. and I was not afraid. And I think it bode well for me because uh, the tactics and things we use during the, the freedom rise, I think also saved my life when I went to Vietnam. Oh, and interesting. So I didn't have any fear there either, even though I had a gun. Uh, and you know, I, I was even, I wasn't, there were situations that required one to be a little bit concerned or afraid and I didn't, so. Like what kind of tactics um, could you translate to Vietnam from that experience? Well, going back to Atlanta when I was jailed, uh, I was sentenced to 16 days in jail, but 10 days was spent in solitary confinement. And why were you jailed? Sorry. Uh, for the sit-ins. For the sit-ins, sit okay. Yeah. And uh, uh, like I said, I spent 10 days in solitary confinement because they said I was singing too loud or I was over exuberant for some reason. So they decided to penalize me by putting me in solitary confinement. Well, at first it was torturous because here you are in a very small cell, no exterior windows, a very uh, low wattage light bulb, and uh, no mattress cover, no no linen at all. And wow. then you are in that, under that austere conditions. And like at first, and no books, no no TV, no nothing. Just you and the, those bleak surroundings. So at first it began to get to me, but then I began to realize, you know, uh, how to deal with it and cope with it. So it gave me inner strength. I learned how to meditate. And uh, those, I think those strengths, I could translate over into Vietnam because there were times it appears like or isolation like we are now. It doesn't, it, it, those things don't bother me anymore. But at first, it did because, you know, you have to entertain yourself with your own thoughts. And at 18, you don't have a whole lot of baggage or any, a lot of stuff to draw from. So, but I think that gave me the strength uh, to do, endure much later on in life. Mm -hmm. um, and I read that you needed a parent to sign off before you could join the Freedom Rides. And your mother refused, but your father signed. Can you tell me about that? Well, my mother, uh, like I guess like all mothers, uh, she was concerned because, you know, it was uh, uh, something new. No one knew what a freedom ride was before that now, even though they had been a uh, joint reconciliation, which took back in 47, but most of us had never heard of that. So uh, she was concerned, uh, but um, she knew that, you know, um, I would, well, she prayed for me and my grandparents prayed for me. So they knew, you know, that much, but still, she had, there was a lot, a lot of reluctance in me, me going out on the trip. Cause I had never left the South before. I never left the state. I had gone to really visit relatives in other parts of Georgia, but I had never left the state of Georgia before that. Mm -hmm. I wonder if she realized though, that, you know, you were putting yourself at such risk, physical harm, you know, and that could have been why she didn't want to sign that, give you that approval. Well, I didn't quite tell her and dad the whole truth. I just said I was going to DC for some advanced training, which is true. 
Oh. Um, about the right portion of what we were going to be challenging coming back. So, uh, what you, you told them you were going for advanced training and sort of nonviolent right. disobedience. I see. Interesting. But your father was willing to sign. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, so, um, and how did you and the other Freedom Riders master? I mean, I guess you touched on it a little bit with meditation, but I'm just wondering, like the thing that really amazes me is, is how did you as a Freedom Rider master this mindset of nonviolence in the face of so much hatred and, and threat and violence? Um, how did you prepare psychologically and physically for that? That's the secret to the whole civil rights movement, especially with the young people. And that's the music, uh, the music of the, of the movement. So we sang a lot of freedom songs. And, you know, we, we had, uh, you know, there were entertainers like Joan Baez, uh, uh, Bob Dylan, and a few other folk singers at the time, along with others. Um, and the music was there to soothe us. It refortified us. But also it was used as a, a means of uh, conveying information, especially for those jailed or for if you wanted to say something in an environment that you didn't want someone to come outright and say something, you could start up a song and you could, you know, you incorporated it in the song. Uh, you know, like I said, if you're going to be leaving in a few minutes or you know there is, you're going to have reinforcements coming, it was a way of, of letting the other members of the group uh, know what was going on and that's how songs played a very vital part in the movement. That's really interesting because um, isn't that also true of uh, during slavery times that some of the singing, you know, um, was uh, a way of conveying messages um, like with the Underground Railroad? Uh, well, we, we learned that later on, but at the time we were not, most of us was not aware that we just yeah. realized that this was the only, only way that we could communicate uh, because, you know, in many cases, uh, like I say, we went with jail in Atlanta, and I'm sure there are other places as well. They didn't just put all the students together. They mixed us in with regular uh, inmates, and we were spread out all over the place. Oh. And like, like in the Freedom Rides, when they got the port parchment, uh, the women were, and they, of course they were segregated, but the women were near the gas chamber, and the men were in another area. And to, to get worse over the distance, in other words, if say you and, and I are in the same cell block, we would sing and the next cell block would pick it up and they would sing. And this way it would go through the entire uh, prison, uh, uh, you know, with the message that we were trying to convey. And so the singing kind of gave you like a spiritual strength too, as well uh, as it, it fortified you. It fortified you, you know, uh, uh, because someone, well, well, like this, for example, one of my favorites was uh, Old Freedom. And it talks about, you know, before I be a slave, I would be buried in my grave. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, well, then you say, you realize that we were involved in a lot of oppressive situations. You know, it wasn't just about a burger or a cup of coffee. It was much more than that. It was jobs. It was uh, respect. Uh, it, you know, just a lot of little things that are so common to most Americans. That we you, you take for granted now, but mm -hmm. then these things were things were hard fought, and things that were sought after, and a lot of people said, "Well, just you just wanted to sit with white, and white people." No, that had nothing to do with it. Yeah, purple. The idea was that my money should have been as good as yours. In mm -hmm. other words, like for the freedom rides, a lot of people realize don't realize that these were not chartered buses. 
You know, these are regular buses that everyday citizens rode on, yet we paid the same fare, yet we were, allowed, we were not allowed to participate or be served and so forth as all the other passengers were. Right, and you wanted the freedom to do everything any American should be able to do. Right. Um, in those moments and or those uh, experiences you had of uh, really vicious assaults, it, you know, uh, I mean, one thing I wonder about is like, how do you keep from fighting back in those situations? I mean, I'm, I know that you go through a training, but I mean, is, isn't there still a reflex when someone's hurting you to fight back? That's where the additional training came in. Uh, Core knew that we could uh, respond to uh, overt act of violence towards us. What they were afraid of is someone came from behind you, someone you didn't see, and they didn't want you to your reflexes or to do something inadvertently. And that's why the additional training was required because we were all had training in nonviolence. But the thing is, they wanted to be sure that not all circumstances, you know, overtly or you know inadvertently. Uh, that we would not respond in a negative or, you know, a way that would bring discredit on our movement. So how did they train you? Like, is did, did they sort of like role play these things in advance? Yeah, we had role playing, but <laughs> ironically, um, our greatest expectation of danger was this. Someone might spit on you. They might squirt ketchup or mustard on you. They might yank you off a stool. They might even spit on you or put out a cigarette on you. But that was as far as our mind could imagine as far as danger as we embarked on it. So we had done those kinds of things, but no one could have told us what we were to experience in Anderson and in, in, in Montgomery, whatever. And there's no way we could have imagined those things. So it was just as, it was extremely shocking, obviously, because it was way beyond what you expected. And yet you still somehow had the inner resolve not to fight back. And we didn't run either. And we didn't cover up. And I think that was one of the frustrating things for me, that we took their best punches and, and, and they didn't take us out. Uh, you know, I, I was able to walk away after a picture was snapped in, in, in Birmingham. And um, uh, they were startled by the photographer. They let me go. They beat up the photographer. They destroyed his camera. And they thought they had destroyed all the uh, film. And they, but one, one film pack survived. And that's the only evidence we have of what happened in, in, in Birmingham. And see, one of the things that they did is they attacked the media first. Uh, they didn't want any evidence, either uh, video, audio, or otherwise. Um, they were, those are the people that really suffered. And to this day, so little information is available about those early days of the Freedom Rides. Uh, I think you had some major uh, uh, issues with the, uh, the buses, the buses that burned, for example. We found last year, no, two years ago, they found 20 additional photos that they didn't know anything about. Wow. And uh, we still haven't found anything about uh, pictures on our bus, the uh, trailway bus in Anderson. Most people don't even realize that we were attacked in Anderson. They thought we went on into Birmingham, but no, we were beaten in Anderson, and then we were beaten again when we got to Birmingham. So when you look back and you remember those uh, 
horrible, those two instances of being beaten, I mean, is it sort of like a, a do you really, do you remember it clearly or do you, is it sort of like such a trauma that it's something that you don't really, that's sort of blocked out from your mind? I wish you could block it out. Uh, it's, it's, it's difficult because um, many times, as I say with interviews and stuff, if I haven't prepared myself or I'm asked a question that I'm not prepared for, I may break down and cry. I might just, just I become speechless because we never received any uh, counseling or anything after this was over. Wow. For many, many years, I never talked about it. In fact, I was married for almost 10 years ago. My wife even realized I was a freedom writer. You know, it's not something that comes up in a conversation. Oh, by the way, you know, you know, it just never came up. Wow. We were in uh, Birmingham at the Civil Rights Museum. And they wanted the kids wanted to go in. And then we saw the exhibit. And then uh, when we got home, uh, some newspaper guy had seen my name in the registry when you register to go in oh. and he called me and he did an interview and that's when they began to find out and then more and more people knew but uh you know it wasn't you know uh, something i mean i'm not that i was ashamed of my activities it's just not something how do you bring it up in a conversation i'm not boasting anything it's just it was a part of my life and you know if, if it came up i talked about it but never in any really large uh you know extensive way but um, I know I almost like wonder why you're not even more famous than you are, <laughs> you know, with the fact that you were the one among that first group of 13 Freedom Riders and the youngest. Um, what, you, what you did was just so important and incredible. Do you remember the first time you ever did a sit-in, um, like where you were and what the scene was like? It was, uh, well, it was a minor one. It was at a little uh, a Rexall drugstore, and we were targeting these particular uh, series of stores because you had your di five and dime, you know, courtesy and all those kind of places. But in Atlanta, uh, the Rexall uh, chain, they were notorious for having a fantastic uh, lunch menu, and they had most of their, their places had 20 to 40. Uh, uh, seats at their at the bar, and the idea was that uh, if you went in to get drugs or any other cosmetics or sundries and stuff like that, then also you should have been able to eat at the lunch counter. So the idea was to purchase something in the uh, that portion of the store and then go grab a burger or a cup of coffee. This way, they'll know that you are a paying customer. In other words, we weren't just gonna go in like some places, the kids would just go right to the lunch counter. We did it the opposite. We want to say we are patrons, we're shopping here, we want a bite to eat. And that's why we chose those places. But then later on, we moved on to uh, the Magnolia Room at Richards was a very upscale at that time, uh, lunch or noonery, you know, for business persons and stuff like that. And the place we chose to get arrested was a place called Sprayberry. And the reason we chose that is because it was in the federal building and it was the building you had to go to to register for the draft, selective service. So uh, we know we had to go in the building anyway once, you know, 
So that's why we chose that building, and that's where most of us were, many of us were arrested. After the boycott over Christmas, then we started out on massive sit-ins, bail, no jail, uh, jail, no bail. And that started in February of 61. And uh, our idea was to fill the jails up, and we averaged uh, 25 to 70 students a day being arrested. Wow. So you didn't want to uh, be bailed out because you wanted to call attention to what you're doing. Now we want to clog up the jails and force the system. In other words, if, if, if there was enough students got in jail, they had no place for the regular prisoners. And that was the idea. I see, right, to overwhelm the whole system. Right. Yeah. And this was in Atlanta? In Atlanta, yes. Yeah. Um, do you have any positive, memorable experiences from the Freedom Rides? What happened, what, what's memorable to me is that since there were no places for we could stay in most of the cities, uh, churches put up, well, people, members of various congregations put us up in their homes. And these people who didn't have very much, but for that period of time, they gave us the best that they had. And I tell you some of the best and most memorable breakfasts, if you like Southern food, I mean, these people, they, they really did us up well. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, the breakfast is, well, the, all the meals they served were just fantastic. And I know when I look back over it, it, it for some of them, it may be taken a tremendous amount out of their budget. The fees is because they, most houses could only handle two, two Freedom Riders. So there was, we were spread out all over the town that we were in. Mm -hmm. They took good care of us. And I had- were these, were these all only black residents or were there any white residents? Only black residents, except mm -hmm. at the New Orleans. They, they, in some cases, they had receptions, you know, at the church afterwards, and then they would farm us out to whoever's going to take care of us over the night. And um, I had planned, oh, I had planned to uh, write all of them and thank them once the ride was over, and I kept a diary, but I lost the diary in Birmingham, in Birmingham when they took my coat, because in that crowd, I lost my, my jacket, and in that jacket was my diary. So I got a chance to thank those people because, like I say, they were pivotal because, uh, you know, I, you, we couldn't have stayed at a better five-star hotel than some of the accommodations that they provided for us. And I know it was the best that they had, and we couldn't have asked for anything more. And they were very supportive of you and what you were doing, I'm sure. Right, right. Yeah. So the Freedom Rides worked to successfully compel the federal government to enforce the law in the South for the integration of inter interstate travel. Um, so how did, how did your role in this historic change impact you personally, knowing that you had made a change through your actions that affected the nation? Um, I don't know, I, I never really thought about it. I, and then at the, during that particular time, uh, we were not uh, overly optimistic because, you know, these were new tactics and we didn't know how the South was going to react. I mean, like since, uh, when we got to Georgia, most of the places there, they allowed us to eat or do what we were supposed to do. Others would just close everything down. So there were a lot of things that were unexpected that happened. Uh, and we weren't deluding ourselves that we were some kind of change makers. We were optimistic. But the main thing was we were just trying to highlight and let the rest of the country know that what was going on, because most people, it was so crazy, most people didn't believe we were telling the truth. Okay, for example, you said, well, um, 
I, I, I was on the bus. I stopped at the bus station, and I went into the so-called colored waiting room. In most places, it was a little, um, it was just a little room. It had maybe a couple of pinches. It always had a jukebox. And there was a little cubby hole where they fed you from, from the main uh, uh, dining hall. I mean, it was just something just stuck there. And uh, it was it was, it was was just crazy. I mean, people would not believe that here you are, like I say, you're, a, a, you're paying full fare, no cut rate or anything like that, and that you were treated like that. And, uh, Which state was that, or where was all, that? Most of all of the states were that one. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just, and, um, <laughs> you know, and it really is funny because even some of the restrooms, they, they, uh, uh, they were unisex restrooms. They didn't have black men and white, you know, black men and black women, uh, colored women and women and, and colored men. It just colored. And we, you alternated, you know. So uh, they didn't have the decency of giving us separate restrooms and stuff. Wow. But when you say people didn't believe it, was that because in some places that it wasn't the case? Or do you mean... Um, that white people had no idea of what you were faced with. Most white people had never didn't know what existed, and they would have been shocked. And that's why a lot of the white freedom was they were shocked because oh. they knew things were bad, but they didn't realize how bad. As a, a classic picture of James Peck, who was a, we did a we, a lot, we were testing a lot together, but he was in one of these colored waiting rooms, and he's sitting by this black woman. And she, he was just as nonchalant as Jim could be. And his lady was probably terrified that this white man is sitting next to me, you know. And she knew she was right, because this is where I'm supposed to be. But why well, is he over here? She couldn't figure that out, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, but Jim was quite a character. He loved it. Mm -hmm. well, wasn't John Lewis in your group, too? Well, he started off with us. Mm -hmm. But the reason he wasn't with us in Anderson he got beat up in uh, Rock Hill, South Carolina, which is right before you, we entered into Georgia. We came into Georgia. We met with Dr. King and his staff, and we spent the night in Atlanta because, you know, that was my home. I spent the night in my own bed. And the next day we, was Mother's Day, which all hell broke loose. What happened then? Well, that's when we went into Anniston. Oh, uh, right. Oh, right. That was Mother's Day. So Martin Luther King, you brought him up, he um, supported the Freedom Riders, but he didn't join in, which I guess some people were critical of that. What was your, your take on it? Well, we had hoped that he might join us, but he had heard that uh, terrible things were waiting for. He, his his uh, scouts in Alabama had heard what the Klan had planned for us, so what they wanted to do to us, and he was trying to discourage us from continuing. Then we respected him, of course, but we had we had had a job to do. And besides, Dr. King was a much better fundraiser. And you have to realize when you got 13 people that's traveling, and we had to have an allowance. They gave us an allowance every day. And the reason they had to give them this allowance because if they ever decided to feed you in one of these places, it would have been very embarrassing that you didn't if you didn't have any money. So generally, what what happened, they would. Uh, when we at in the evenings we had our mass meetings at generally at a church, and uh, they would uh, uh, take up a love offering for the Freedom Riders, and that would be our our uh, money our, our uh, mm -hmm. allowance for the next day. 
So, because normally you, a day you might, you had your breakfast stop, and normally you might have four or five stops. So even if you know, if you bought a, a burger or a milkshake or something like that, even if you didn't get a full meal, you still need to have money to do that. And that was why we were given an allowance. So did you have experiences where you were served and, you know, treated with respect or at least served? Only in the upper, uh, after we left DC in the upper part of Virginia, though, right in that area, once we got into, into what the heart of Dixie, as they say, things got, there was no service. Right. But looking back on it now, um, I mean, of course, you know, it really did, right? What, what you did was part of what made the, the U.S. government decide, you know, to, um, to, you know, that it kind of compelled the federal government to start enforcing the law in the South. And, you know, Kennedy, you know, people saw what was going on, you know, with the Freedom Riders, right? And these images of dogs being set on people and horrible things in it. And it kind of compelled the government to do something uh, and to start enforcing this. So do you, do you look back now and feel that you were a part of something that made a definite change? I very took it very cavalier uh, until uh, several years ago. And uh, we were on a road trip with my mother. Uh, and we were going to see my brother who was dying of uh, cancer, lung cancer, from exposure to uh, Agent Orange in Vietnam. Oh. So uh, uh, we stopped at our second road, uh, rest stop. My mom says to me, she says, I'm glad you guys did what you did. And it's the first time we ever talked about this. And I said, what do you mean, mom? She says, I remember uh, these kinds of trips in the past and there were no restaurants that would serve us and there was no rest stops where we could go and potty. And she says, this is uh, so much better than it was traveling in those days. And what a lot of people don't realize, and they don't even stress this in the Green Book, uh, like mom would always pack a lunch for us when we were going on a road trip. And normally she'd pack it in a brown bag or a shoe box. Dad would get some sodas and stuff. Uh, and, you know, uh, food was no problem. The biggest problem for us was potty time. When it came to going to the restroom, the boys would go out into the woods and find a bush or a tree and they would leave themselves. But for my sisters and my, for my mom, what they had to do was, dad would open, we had a four-door car, and the women would squat down between the open doors of the car and to relieve themselves. And, you know, because they didn't, couldn't decide how much grass was gonna grow up there in the weeds and stuff like that. And in those days, girls didn't wear pants. So here you are working with a, a skirt and crinolines and all those kinds of things. And I says, I can imagine how difficult and how not only is it embarrassing of trying to do nature's business under those kinds of conditions, simply because you could not use a restroom in a gas station or a restaurant along the way. So she brought that to my remembrance and, you know, I got this, realizing how difficult travel used to be for us. And uh, so that made me feel good at least. And, you know, she realized that there were benefits that came out of those, those, those sacrifices that we made during that time.
now, uh, 2020, when you look around and you see what's happening right now um, with what seems like this endless slot, onslaught of both police and vigilante killings that kind of go um, ignored by the police of unarmed, unarmed black people, including what feels like a 2020 repeat of the murder of Trayvon Martin and Eric Garner, now with um, Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd, um, what are your thoughts or do you feel that the country is moving forward towards the justice and equality that you fought for? I, I, we have made tremendous strides, tremendous in, in so many areas. Uh, this is an area that uh, we're working on now too and maybe you can help us. But uh, this is a, a conversation that every black parent has to have with his or her uh, sons and daughters. You know, and I, it doesn't solve with just, you know, used to be teenagers, but now uh, you can be much older. Uh, and you can be right, and uh, you can still be wrong. You have to watch the circumstances. And it depends on, on uh, the policeman uh, that stopped you. You don't know what his, what, how his day has been going. And even though he knows the law and you know the law, your individual interpretation might be different. You may say the wrong word or something that upset him, uh, and he goes even further. So what I, I had a brainstorm. This and this particular one hurt me the worst. I mean, for some reason, I have been able to the function. Which one? Uh, the one with uh, George Floyd. Yeah. So I had a brainstorm the other day, and it came about because I have a uh, a nephew who just turned eighteen, and he doesn't want to register to vote. And he says he doesn't know have a reason to vote. So um, what I told his mother is, is that, you know, he needs to know his history for one thing. I said, well, well, here's what I would like for you to do. He loves video games and stuff like that. Why don't we develop an app that will help minimize or eliminate the instances where black men or any unarmed person uh, could be uh, killed. So I posted on Facebook and I've got a pretty good response and I've come up with some parameters, some things that you would want an app to do. The idea is that if, say, if you say you run along and okay, the police is going to pull you over, you activate the app and the app would do, it would certify your location, some of your vitals. So if you were in a situation like he was, and once his vitals went into a danger zone, it would set off a, 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 a very loud alarm. Uh, it would also uh, notify three people who you have programmed into your, into your app. So uh, if you were having trouble breathing or whatever, it would, some kind of alarm would go off and it would notify other people? Like, like a smartphone, like a, a Fitbit. A Fitbit, yeah, I was thinking that. Yeah. Also, yeah, we have the capability of uh, audio and visual recording or either or, or both in the circumstance. One of the things with the, what happened uh, in Minneapolis is the fact that they're so slow in making decisions, but by their reluctance to uh, charge these other cops, uh, is making, was giving these people a reason to, to, to protest. As they, as they say, thank God for, for the cameras and the smartphones because I mean, lately it's presented us some, some, some terrible scenes, but the thing is, 
in our era, it would have been nice if we could have had smartphones on the Freedom Rides. I could have had just pretty good photos, you know. Yeah. So back to the app, I mean, say if George Floyd had had your app, like, is there some way that that app could have um, maybe, I don't know, alerted a, um, a medical personnel or somebody like that, um, EMS, or, or how, how, how do you envision that, that it could have could save somebody like in his situation? Well, I think if, 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 if what I would say is it would, it would have made a noise so loud that they would have, everybody would have ever respond. I don't know. Um, uh, not, I, I think even louder than a car alarm, but I want something that's ear piercing that it's going to get somebody's attention. And that's the idea. But anyway, once they're out and people know what the sound is that uh, people in the neighborhood would have responded. And I wanted also another aspect I would like to have, if you have the same app and you're in the neighborhood, it would, it would toggle you. It wouldn't, you know, it let you know that, hey, something in my area is going on. So you would be there to also to in range to, to help out or at least bring attention to what's going on. So if you had been there while this was going on with George Floyd, what would you have done? I'd have done something. I don't know what it is. It might have been wrong and I might have got shot, but I would not, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't do that. No, this is not my nature. Yeah. I couldn't see it happen to an animal, let alone a human being. Yeah, I agree. So hopefully, uh, as we brainstorm and we work through this thing, that we'll come up with something because uh, the, the death of Mr. Floyd was one thing, but the violence uh, that has in the aftermath, and people want to say these are demonstrators. That is not a demonstration uh, because there are certain rules uh, that should have been carried out that wasn't. Say, for example, in here in Atlanta, all these kids with backpacks. Uh, well, first of all, nobody checked their back backpacks. These kids had spray paint. One kid had a blowtorch. You don't carry those kind of items on a peaceful world protest. Likewise, um, you don't, the leaders of the thing have to define who they are and what they're trying to accomplish. Then they in turn tell the people that's marching what you're gonna do and how you're gonna do it. And all these things obviously was ignored. I mean, there's a method to the madness and I think that they are not drawing from past experiences. But in other words, they want numbers. Also, we used to have monitors all along the way. Our people to monitor who's in there because many times people who have a different agenda than you will infiltrate your march mm -hmm. and embarrass you. It happened to Dr. King. Dr. King's march, this last march, was interrupted with a riot because it was infiltrated. Well, it's interrupted by rioting? I would guess that there were people, several people that were paid to infiltrate mm -hmm. this march to create havoc. Mm -hmm. And they did. And if you were to go back to Memphis, right before he was killed, there was that march he conducted, there was a riot. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but he, he, what I, what see, he was in another city. He did organize there like he would normally have organized if all his people had been involved, you know. And that's why he got out of hand. And that's what has happened apparently all over the country. And there's some, some connection because the odds, and I'm a betting man, of riots breaking out in that many cities over the same incident is not a coincidence. 
I mean, if you have a peaceful, nonviolent protest, it doesn't end up throwing more talk cocktails and stuff because you don't have that. We, you have, we were not allowed to carry anything that could be used as a weapon. And these kids, I mean, oh, where did they get this stuff from? I don't know. But, uh, you know, uh, it's, it seems to be this, some orchestration on a larger scale that we don't know of yet. But it has nothing to do with nonviolence. It has nothing to do with demonstrations. And it has nothing to do with protests. Well, I've been reading some different things on that. And I mean, I'm also conflicted. But um, some people like Cornell West and others I've read point out that the true looting um, is the looting of the majority. You know, when you talk of looting, for example, is the looting of the majority of the people, uh, particularly marginalized people of color under a capitalist system that continuously rewards the military, police, corporations, real estate speculators, landlords, drug companies, and billionaires, and that we see this playing out in terms of who gets the bulk of the stimulus money during this pandemic. And I see you shaking your head, but one, one journalist, Peter Gowan, he wrote this, should we blame working class black people for lashing out at a government and economy designed to repress, exploit, and subdue them? during a pandemic in which capitalism has made it nearly impossible for them to survive? Well, the images that I've seen, and maybe it's partiality of the photographers, that in, uh, in Atlanta and also in uh, Minneapolis, uh, many of the, the, the uh, looters, if you want to call them, were white. Mm -hmm. So you can't, you know, also, uh, like I say, some of these kids have some very expensive backpacks, and I know uh, uh, it will come out in the, in the wash. Because, like I say, if if I was going to conduct a march, I would screen my people. It's not about numbers so much, and I think that uh, uh, for some of those marches, there's a tremendous amount of white support. Some say it's the alt right. Uh, some says uh, the, the, the what uh, the uh, attorney general says is Antifa, but uh, you know. You think they might be involved in this? Is that what you're saying? I, I think that there are some groups involved because the the the, uh, the odds of that many um, violent protests throughout the country is unusual. Because even when Dr. King was assassinated. There were riots, but they, were, they weren't protesting. These people were actually, and that's what it seems more like now. Well, that's what I was thinking. I mean, wasn't it even worse at times during the 60s in terms of uh, riots and things like that? Um, I mean, that's what I've read, that it was even more intense. I mean, this is really extreme what's happening right now, but there's been periods where it's been extremely, I mean, even more. In, um, but those were individual communities responding to events in their communities. And that's what I'm saying. Oh, okay. I see what you're saying. But see, the, the odds of them all, a lot of those folks, they only know what, like the rest of we all saw the same thing. And every day there's another video, another angle of the same scene. But, uh, and that's what I'm saying is that uh, if you say you decided to have a nonviolent protest and you organized and I organized, the odds of both, both ended up in a rise was very, very off, were very, very slim. Uh -huh. Because you would, or you would, you would gather your people saying, 
We're going to have a nonviolent protest tomorrow. I want you to gather at the First Baptist Church on 8th Street and da 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 da. But likewise, after you're ready, you tell the people what you're going to do, how you're going to do it. Once you've done it, you take them back to the church on 8th Street and you dismiss them. You don't dismiss them in the center of town. They got to get in their cars, they got to get home. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the whole thing was just ill-planned. But do you think that um, some, I mean, obviously there are some protesters that are angry. And I mean, do you think that, you know, like for example, after the Rodney King, what happened with Rodney King, there was uh, a lot of, you know, sort of destruction of property and that kind of thing. And do you, uh, recognize though some of that the rage that people might feel of of just be of the powerlessness of the uh you know that many black people feel like when they see you know so many unarmed black people getting murdered one after another and and the police so rarely being held accountable and that that, that could uh, pr provoke people to just become destructive no, I don't buy it for one reason. Uh, what are you? What are you? What are you trying to achieve? Okay, this is the you know you got to have an objective. What are you trying to achieve? Mm -hmm. Okay, if you resort to violence, people who would all normally sympathize with you, support you, are not going to. And that's why Dr. King always believed in nonviolent passive resistance because mm -hmm. we needed allies. You develop allies who could see your suffering and they could empathize with you. But when you go out there and you destroy other people's property, you have no concern for their safety. There is no empathy there. Mm -hmm. So what I'm saying is that if, if you got a march, you explain to people what you're trying to achieve mm -hmm. in the morning bound, Mr. John's um, CVS is not going to further our cause. You're trying to achieve something, and by doing the opposite, you're not going to achieve anything by being destructive. Yeah, I see your point. I mean, I'm wondering though if there are there are <coughs> groups um, that are, you know, do come in with a peaceful intention of nonviolence, and then other groups that are not, and um, it could be what's happening. Well, you get sucked up into uh, the mob mentality. For we had it here in Atlanta too. We had a young lady. Uh, she had her own agenda. And she would try to encourage us to sit in at places that were not on our schedule. No, oh, this was when you were a freedom rider? Yes. Mm -hmm. And what we, what we realized that this is not what the group had agreed to do. This is contrary to what that we were trying to achieve. And like I say, this comes with when you organize a march, you explain to them what you're trying to do and how you're going to do it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and like I say, if you tell people, hey, if you can't be nonviolent, then you can make signs. You can do this, but you're not gonna. You're not gonna march with us, because here's the point. In our days, uh, you know, you get somebody hurt or you get somebody killed, and likewise, another thing, we never did anything at night, mm -hmm. because under the cover of darkness, whether you're good or bad, strange things can happen. Mm -hmm. We make sure we're off the street before it got dark. Mm -hmm. We didn't want anything to happen to our people. Well, likewise, we don't want anything to happen to the, the, the uh, first responders because they're out there trying to protect you as well. Right. 
Do you think that nonviolent civil, civil disobedience, like what you're talking about, what you did as a freedom writer, would work in today's climate in response to the police killing of so many unarmed black people? It, it, it takes that, and it also takes, you, you've got to have a resolve. There are, a lot of things have changed. For example, uh, there used to be, when you took a, a federal or a state job, there was a list of uh, organizations that were subversive, that, that, had, that you wouldn't want your employees associated with. And you would have to go through and uh, certify that you were not a member of the Klan, you were not a member of the NWCB, I think they were on there too, uh, the John Birch Society, on and on and on. There's a whole group of stuff. The NWACP was on that? Did you say that? It was, it was on there too. Uh-huh. But the idea is that if your employees, and if they lied, that's a good point. See, if they lied, and you later found out that they were a card-carrying member of the KKK, then whatever offense would be intensified because you lied to get employment, especially if it was a policeman. Because a lot of people feel that uh, a lot of the policemen are closeted Klansmen. I've heard that. Uh, uh, you know, white ring, uh, um, white supremacists. And here's a way... Uh, but if you don't uh, declare your uh, allegiance or your involvement with these groups, uh, then you know they're allowed to. They have their own agenda. Even though they're in your police department or your fire department, they have their own agenda, and that's what you have to do with the with these uh, protesters. Mm -hmm. Other people, you make sure that you're on the same page. You know, it's not numbers are important to a point, mm -hmm. but I would rather march with. 200 people than 2,000 if I don't have control. Mm -hmm. And that's when you have to be able to control your people. That's just like your kids. I mean, you know, you, you have to have to maintain control. It can be done and it should be done. Um, as I'm sure you know, Twitter put a, just, just to shift gear for a minute, Twitter put a warning label on one of Trump's tweets recently in regard to the Minneapolis protesters. And he wrote when, or he said, he tweeted, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. And I thought of you and the Freedom Riders because I've read that this phrase comes straight from the civil rights era from Miami Police Chief Walter Headley, who used it in 1967 during hearings about crime in Miami, and that he may have borrowed it from other segregationists like uh, Bull Connor, Eugene Bull Connor, and George Wallace of Alabama. Was that phrase familiar to you when you heard it? Yeah, it, it, was, it was familiar. But these were, then again, see, here's the point. You're, uh, they, if we keep involving protests with, uh, with looters, mm -hmm. they're not the same. Right, but looters shouldn't be shot. <laughs> no, I'm not saying they should be shot, right. but the is, they look us all in the same group. And, I, see. Uh, I see what you're saying. Case, you know, mm -hmm. because, like I say, initially, those groups start off to be protests. Mm -hmm. But like you say, that some who have their own agenda, right. for whatever reason, decide they wanted to veer off and they want to throw a brick through Mr. John's grocery store. Right you know, or write graffiti all over his windows and stuff like that, which right. has nothing to do with, with your protests. Right, and I agree. I feel like sometimes we don't hear enough about the peaceful protesters that, like you're saying, they tend to be just sort of grouped all as one unified, you know, body when really there are different groups within that. Um, 
Yeah, I, one of the things that came out this weekend, I used to use it a long time ago when I first started off, about the Boston Tea Party, how we, in America, how uh, that was a form of protest. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was destructive because tea was a very important commodity in the colonies. And in order to miss your tea time was going to be something else. But, you know, and that got people's attention. And that's what a, a, a protest is. You mm -hmm. try to piss people off. You want to get somebody's attention. Mm -hmm. But you don't want to do it violently. But, I mean, it wasn't violent towards persons, but it affected everybody because they dumped all that tea into the water. Yeah, that's true. It's a good point. Do you have any final thoughts, like we're getting towards the end of this, of just about this chaotic time we're living through? Well, one thing I like to say, and one thing I've been stressing with young people that I've met with in the last few months, mostly over Zoom, is that you remember this no matter what's going on all around us, that there are a lot of good people in this world. Don't be tainted by the so-called badness there. I tell them that as good change always comes from young people, because young people get impatient. Older people, we rationalize stuff and we can put up with it, but kids can't. All change comes with young people. Mm -hmm. And I tell them that you have the ability to change the world. And when your bus comes along, will you get on it? And uh, uh, when my bus came, it was a physical bus. Your bus may not be a physical bus. Mm -hmm. but when your time comes, will you make a decision? Because uh, we need your help. America needs you and we need you. You've been listening to Under the Surface. I've been talking to Charles Person, one of the original Freedom Riders from the 1960s. Thank you so much, Charles, for being a guest on today's show. It's, it's been a pleasure talking to you. The pleasure is mine.